You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. This is Zach Bond from Team Covenant, and you're listening to I Rebel, a Star Wars Destiny podcast. Forgery of Imperial documents, possession of stolen property, aggravated assault. State your name for the record. Jen Arsa, we have a mission for you. I want to help. Good. The world is coming undone. Imperial flags reign across the galaxy. I fear nothing. All is as the Force wills it. Every day they grow stronger. There isn't much time. I rebel. Welcome everyone to I Bell. I'm your host, Jedi Geek Girl. Our patrons have voted and you have submitted questions. Welcome to a quarterly listener's choice episode. Before we dive in and get to our guests, I would like to take this time out to send a huge shout out to one of our patrons, Jim. Jim is a fun-loving guy who has been a long-time supporter of Ivy Bell and who is a personal good friend. Thank you, Jim, and to the rest of our patrons for your support. It is because of you that this podcast is made possible. To find out more information about our Patreon program, including how to get our one-of-a-kind tokens, please check out patreon.com slash Destiny for more information. Hello Rebels, Lassie here. iRebel is also brought to you by Artificery.com, your place to go for Star Wars Destiny product. Check out our website, and if you decide to purchase any Star Wars Destiny product, please use the word Jedi Geek Girl, one word, at checkout to help sponsor iRebel. Pick up some Star Wars Destiny product and help support the show all at the same time. Win-win, right? Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. Back to you, Jedi Geek Girl. Joining me for this episode is a returning guest, a guest who our patrons have voted for. The one, the only, the roguish chum himself, Zach Bunn. <laughs> I am not certain there has ever been a better inter- or a more flattering introduction for me. I very much appreciate that. And I'm humbled that your fans and your audience would choose to vote to have me on the show. And as always, I'm happy to be here. I think they made a good decision. It's always great to have you back on. And I know I was looking forward to talking to you again, because the last time that we talked, I think our conversation was really good and engaging. I'm glad to hear that's the case. And hopefully that's also the case for this episode. Episode 48. Is that right? Yes, it is. I'm almost to my year anniversary. So that's awesome. It is. And you know, every episode has its new challenges and its new takes because every guest is different. Even having returning people on, you know, each episode is new and fresh. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Before we dive into our listener questions and new things to talk about, I want to go back and revisit a couple of things that we talked about the last time that you were on. All right. The last time that we talked, it was before Solo. We also talked about The Last Jedi, and you were talking about how you were not really looking forward to Solo, but had low expectations. Solo has come and gone. It has been months since it came out. What did you think? Were you blown away or were you underwhelmed? Like I said on the last episode, I was going into Solo with very low expectations and probably for the better. And I saw the movie, of course. I thought it was really well done. I thought it was enjoyable. And ultimately, I think it was better than I expected, but also in some ways it was kind of what I expected, which is ultimately I thought it was good. It was fine. It didn't blow me away. It wasn't, you know, it's not on my at the top of my Star Wars or in any of my movie lists, but I thought it was a really well done movie. The acting was better than I expected. You know, I thought it was solid, but kind of my fundamental case for Star Wars movies, and it's, it's what I really hope to see moving forward, especially with Ryan Johnson getting his own trilogy and the people that did Thrones getting their trilogy. But Star Wars is a very big universe. And it spans thousands and thousands of years. And that's one of the things that always made it feel super special to me, especially when I started diving into the EU books and whatnot. And so one of the unique things about Star Wars as compared to like the Marvel movies is that for Marvel to introduce a new hero, it's quite difficult, especially if it's a new hero that hasn't been seen in the comics before. Whereas with Star Wars, even a movie like Rogue One introduced a whole new cast of characters. I mean, there were certainly characters we knew about beforehand that were involved in the movie from Tarkin to Vader, even to Princess Leia. But, you know, they weren't the central 
pieces of the movie. And so I am very hopeful that after episode nine and in the future of Star Wars, they start taking some risks and tell very new stories with very new characters, because that's just a lot more interesting to me. And even for Solo, I think my grand, here's what I would have done if I were in charge of the universe, which I'm not. So that's not how it works. But what I would have done is I would have probably made Kira the main character. I agree 100%. Her story was what I was most attached to because I was listening to an episode that we did before and you were talking about how Solo isn't your favorite character and like you mentioned, you had low expectations and while it was a good enjoyable film, it probably wasn't the Star Wars that you like. You're very similar to me, I find, except the prequels. I kind of like the prequels more than you do, but correct me if I'm wrong, but you're more attracted to the spiritual foresight of Star Wars more than the rogue scoundrel. Yeah, I mean, I definitely do. But I also enjoy, you know, like when I first read the original Thrawn trilogy, everything from Talon Card, I believe, all the way to Thrawn, right? Like there's the Imperial military, the book Tarkin, and I haven't read the new Thrawn book yet. But there's the military side that's very interesting to me, right? Like when you have a galaxy that big, how the government functions is interesting. And the rogues and scoundrels are are interesting. And that's where like, I think if Kira had been the center character, and then kind of like in Rogue One, how you get scenes with Vader, or you get scenes with Tarkin, you have Han and Lando and these characters that we've come to know. And you could see, you know, I mean, Kira was there when Han and Lando are betting on the Falcon, kind of a situation both times. So if she had been the main character, and it's basically about her getting involved in the Crimson Dawn to escape the planet, and then her rising in the organization, and then her having to make this choice, especially when she's basically betraying, spoiler alert, by the way, for anyone that hasn't seen Solo, when she's betraying someone we know and love, which is Han Solo, I think that cuts a lot deeper if you've also come to really care for Kira in that movie, and she's your protagonist. So that's just one take on it. But I think the problem with having someone like Solo as your main character is that you, again, another part of Star Wars, whether it's the Force or not, right? And the Force is surrounded by, this is why I'm making all these points. When you watch it, especially in the original trilogies, there's a lot of mystery, right? There's a lot of unknowns. Yoda to Obi-Wan to the way Luke's using it and Vader using it. And there's a lot that you don't know. And the prequels very much tried to specifically, scientifically flesh the Force out. But something like this movie, right? It's like, there's a lot less mystery about Han. And I think if we had had five to 10 minutes of him in a Kira movie, I would have gotten as much out of it as I did for Solo, except for I would have also had a whole new story and a whole new cast of characters that I really cared about. You are saying so much that I agree with. Like, you are expressing my thoughts and opinion on the movie. I agree 100%. I think the focus should have been on Kira. I think when you have a main character that is an established character that you love, and you basically know his journey. You know his journey from A New Hope to The Force Awakens. And while it was nice getting that story and we got a little bit more depth to his character... I don't want to say it wasn't really needed, but it wasn't really needed. Where if we got that story, but it wasn't Han being the main character, but somebody else, you would still get that background, but you would be investing into a new character that you didn't know where they ended up. And you could see Han's story without having to feel like you aren't being able to invest in a character because we already know his story and his journey. I think the other part of that too is that, you know, just for me personally, I really enjoy good characters and character development. And I think that's part of why I really liked The Last Jedi so much. And I understand why a lot of people didn't in terms of like the macro level plot itself, what's going on on like this big plot level. And so with Solo, you know, plot things are happening. But at the same time, it's like he's very much a similar character at the beginning and the end. He's learned a little bit. But unlike his arc from A New Hope to Return of the Jedi, He's a completely different character by the end, right? He makes his choices, he evolves, etc. And so, I don't know, like if you are going to go back and make him the character, I feel like you need some kind of arc where he changes from something into what we originally saw him in A New Hope. And it really kind of just felt like he was the same the whole time, which is, again, it was fine. It wasn't like a negative and I love Star Wars and as long as I keep putting movies out, I'm going to go see them. It was unfortunate. They had to do reshoots and all that that happened with it, but... If you're going to spend that much money on a Star Wars movie, I would very much like to see some new territory explored. And like, not in a way that, and I think this is the difference, right? Which is like, don't dive necessarily deeper into what we already know, but give us a whole bunch of new land to think about. That's where like, I would love to see if Ryan Johnson's trilogy ends up being a thousand years in the future, a thousand years in the past, I would be super happy about that. 
I think his trilogy is going to blow us away. I think he will explore a new area of Star Wars that we haven't seen and it's fresh. And I hope that people, no matter what their opinion on The Last Jedi is, will go see that film because I think it will be a new and fresh film that will breathe new life into Star Wars. Yeah, I really hope so. And I, I think, you know, Abrams will do episode nine and hopefully the people that are really upset right now enjoy that or at minimum are willing to check it out. And I'm personally very excited to see a Ryan Johnson completely original trilogy. He's not telling the middle chapter of someone else's story. He's not dealing with characters that someone else created and all of that. Like, I think he's a really creative individual and I'm looking forward to seeing what he does. Wrapping up Solo, where would you rank it? So in terms of all the Star Wars films, it's probably easier to list movies that are below it for me. Which are the prequels. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which are definitely the prequels. That may be it. It's probably, and that's why I think it's fine. Where like my least favorite movie that's not the prequels or Solo among all the Star Wars movies is probably Rogue One. And I like Rogue One, but it's definitely below Rogue One by a couple of points. So that's where it hangs out. Last Jedi and Force Awakens are great for me. So... And of course, the original trilogy is the original trilogy. Where does it rank for you? For me, it's toward the bottom. Like I said, I am more of a prequel lover. So a lot of them rank a little higher than most people's list. But Solo is toward the bottom, like last three. And it's the bottom of the new films for me, just because of what I like in my Star Wars. Sure. Moving on to our next subject that we are going to touch upon, that we touched upon last time. The Covenant Master Series. You guys are two or three events in now? So we've done two, and the third one is next weekend. So it's August 18th, and that'll be our third qualifier. And we recently announced that the championship will be happening in February. I know that I have not been able to attend one yet, but what I have been seeing, it looks like a lot of fun. How has it been going for you? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but you played in all of them to date. Yeah, I have played in all of them so far. You know, it's, it's really cool. The first one we had in June, and when we originally were planning that event series and scheduled it, our expectations were definitely that we expected a new set to come out around May. So we scheduled it you know, later in June, basically to hedge our bets and say that if that set got delayed, at least we had a chance of the new set coming out in time before the event. It didn't end up coming out. So the first event was Legacies, and it was Legacies draft after Legacies had been out for like five, six months. And so that was interesting because like locally speaking here in Tulsa, we draft quite a bit, probably at least on a weekly basis. So there were a lot of people that came from out of town. I mean, we had states, we had Texas and Arkansas and Missouri and Kansas and Illinois and California. And I don't want to miss any now that I started listing states. I think some of them from Nebraska came. So we had pretty good representation from states, but like the whole top six was Tulsa. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that we had just been playing Legacies draft for like five or six months, basically every week or multiple times a week. But it was a really great event, even still, right? One of my favorite things about that event was the night before, a lot of us are hanging out at the store, hanging out, doing a practice draft. And even the morning of, we all get there and we're registered and whatnot. But unlike a store championship or a regional, there really just was like no tension in the air. And I think a lot of that came from, you know, we hoped and designed the event to be that way. But because it was draft, it's like you didn't build a deck, you didn't test it, you're just showing up. And you can't really take that too intensely. You just kind of have to go draft and hope you make good choices and get a little bit lucky and get some good cards. Because you're playing draft, draft is just such an incredible format. The games themselves are just much more fundamental. So it's a lot less often you might have what I would call a negative play experience where someone just kind of like runs away with a game. Most of the games are super close. But yeah, the events have been really well received. And we just as a general way of doing things at Covenant, we very much experiment and learn and try and change things. And I think when you're doing things that a lot of people aren't already doing, and there's not kind of a standard for everything you do is a learning opportunity. And so you have to, I think we ultimately got really good at that process. And so we're about to have our third event and just interacting with the community and getting feedback on how the event was run. I mean, we started making small tweaks in terms of where's the lunch break and all kinds of other feedback we're getting. And so a lot of that is what led us to kind of change up how we're going to finish out the series before we get to that championship in February. But it's been really cool. I think the players are loving the prizes, the way that we're giving out the prizes. It's heavy lean towards like participation versus just winning and so it's been really great and our local destiny community and our regional destiny community i guess is super healthy we're getting a good 25 30 plus people every week playing destiny on our league night so it's been great all around and just a cool to watch 
I think as a player, it's just playing that much draft has also been kind of crazy. Like playing ultimately nine rounds of draft in a row and doing three drafts in a single day. You start learning a lot about just the format and how to draft. So that's been really cool too. I love the setup that you have. I am really looking forward to participating in an event that has the same setup that you do. I think it's very unique. I think it's very innovative. And like I mentioned the last time that I had you on, I hope that you guys will go further because I think it has legs. Having said that, you guys made some new changes to it. Not too long ago, you announced not only the championship event, but you also posted dates for future events. And in that posting, those future events are a different format. What was the reason for going a different direction for your last three events? There was a a lot of reasons for it. And most of it stemmed from just general understanding and feedback from the community and what was going on. Ultimately, like I said earlier, the first qualifier, we had a lot of representation from a lot of states. The second qualifier, we had representation from all those states. We also had even more. There were some people that drove down from Minnesota. And there were two or three other states offhand, I don't remember. But one of the things that when we were originally planning the series, we always envisioned qualifiers that led to a championship event, heavily focused on participation and community building. And, you know, it's a draft event or maybe even sealed so you don't have to build a deck and you don't have to own really anything at all. Just super accessible kind of a thing. But one of the things we learned pretty quickly is, well, a few things. I mentioned this earlier, which is when we first started playing the series, we scheduled the first qualifier for June 23rd, assuming that the next set would be out in May. And that didn't come out till July. And so then we had the June 23rd, which is just a couple of weeks before the new set dropped and then the new set dropped. And so we had one a couple of weeks after that. And then we're having one now about a month later. But, you know, one of the things we heard a few things, right? One, just in terms of releases and the predictability of releases and the release schedules, it's kind of erratic. And so we can't really bank or plan on that. Like as an example, our first qualifier was in June and went over very well. But at the same time, people were drafting and they had been drafting legacies for five months. So the actual desire to draft legacies at that point was not exactly through the roof. People were good at it and they were experienced at it, but pretty much everyone locally had kind of gotten the product they had wanted, got the legendaries they wanted. And so the value of the drafts weren't quite as high. And then on the flip side, one thing we wanted to be able to do was essentially announce these events earlier because there was a whole lot of out of town interest, but we were announcing the events, you know, four-ish weeks, three or four weeks before they happened. And so kind of mixing those together, we were looking at it and we knew we were doing a championship and we're wanting to do that in February. And, you know, we're crossing our fingers and hoping that the base set comes out in time for that event, you know, set seven. We'll see. I have no idea if it's going to or not. But, you know, looking at wanting to announce the dates in advance to give people that are coming from out of town, like yourself even, the chance to plan and budget and schedule. And, you know, there'd be the time where, like, there's someone who really wants to come and they're trying to convince two or three of their friends because it's a five-hour drive and a hotel room and whatnot. It's just a lot to, like, figure out in that short of a time span. And then because we were announcing them further in advance, then you start going back to the release schedule quandary where, you know, right now they're saying Across the Galaxy is coming out, which is set six in quarter four. And I think it's targeted for November. And so I hope that is true. And I hope it comes out on time. I hope it comes out before that, honestly. But if we had scheduled various draft events, there would be a lot of hesitancy from even our locals, but especially the out-of-town players, to commit to making that kind of a trip to draft a set that might be five or six months old if Across the Galaxy gets delayed. That's a lot of the elements. And then the other element, too, is that we designed this event series from the bottom up to be very accessible and to give players a chance to get involved in events if they're not you know, ready for a regional or a nationals or that kind of a thing. And so another element of that is that besides those factors was just that $100 draft event that takes nine rounds. And if you do make the top six is 12 rounds. That's actually a pretty intense event. And so there's definitely nothing final on it yet. But at the same time, even when we host another qualifier that is draft, it probably will look a little bit different just to to lower that bar of entry for people. Because again, the whole point of this is to build community and get people involved and give people something exciting to talk about and to go to for this game to really just build the community. So we're constantly assessing that. And if we feel like we need to expand that, then we do. And so we announced our October, November, and December qualifiers. Those are on the, the website now for anyone that's interested. And the October one is standard. And the presumption there is that it'll be before Across the Galaxy comes out. So it's constructed, which means that we can lower the price significantly on the event. For people that don't like Draft and Seal, they now have a qualifier where they can play and earn the prizes or qualify for the championship. And then our November one, I think it's mid-November, and that's sealed. And so that 
again, cross fingers, hope across the galaxy comes out. And if it does, then that's going to be an awesome across the galaxy sealed event. We haven't done sealed yet. I don't know that there have been any big tournaments for sealed, which would be cool to see. And then if it's not, at least, you know, people will be doing sealed for a set that they really, you know, we don't practice sealed at the store. So that's kind of a new challenge for our local and regional meta. And then in December, we're doing a trilogy, which is my honestly favorite constructed format for Star Wars Destiny. And again, that is under the hope that Across the Galaxy is out at, at least sometime before December, because that'll also be the first time that the Legacies trilogy is complete, right? It has all three sets. So that's kind of a nice way to end out the year and function as the last qualifier before we head to the championship in February. That makes a lot of sense. What you are explaining, what you are talking about to have these different entry points. Drafting is still your bread and butter. Having these other events help attract somebody who maybe wants to play Sealed or wants to partake in your event and get those sweet tokens and deck boxes, but maybe can't spend $100 for a draft tournament or for a, I don't know what the price on your Sealed event is. I think it's 80 or 90 But with your trilogy and your standard tournament, they can still go and, like I said, get those sweet tokens and deck boxes without having to worry about having a higher entry point. Well, and the other thing that's pretty cool about it, and we've announced very little details about the championship other than Jeremy's were in the lead developer, he's going to be there. And, you know, I think the qualifiers and the championship featuring several different formats for Star Wars Destiny, is it's a pretty cool way to demonstrate mastery. And so like the championship event itself will certainly be an event that features multiple formats. So I think we're going to do some really different things there and some unique things. So I'm really excited about the championship. And that's something we'll be, I expect us to be covering very extensively in terms of live streams and showing what's going on. Because I think we're going to be doing some stuff with Destiny that people haven't seen yet. It sounds really exciting. I know that I am hoping to make it out because you guys are paving the way and one thing at a time, but I have high hopes and it's just so exciting. I see so much potential in what you're doing. And I remember the last time that you had a designer come down to Team Covenant, it was actually the reveal of the Luke and Vader promo. So who knows what Fantasy Flight Games will bring to your championship event, right? Who knows indeed. It could be some crazy things. Moving on to our next section, you just got back from Gen Con. So how was Gen Con? Because it seems like it is always crazy and I don't even know where to begin. So let's start at the beginning. How was your Gen Con? Gen Con was really good. You know, Gen Con is interesting. I started going to Gen Con in 2007. The first year I went, there were maybe 20, 25,000 people that went. And then, you know, this year, for example, I think there was 70, 80, 90,000 people. So it's grown quite a bit over the years. And, you know, back in 2007, that was when board games were just now starting to get hot and kind of grow in the whole golden age of board gaming. You know, I think the weirdest thing, and I'm not certain, honestly, if this is more because I've been so many times and so much experience or just the reality of what was going on, but the like excitement and energy level at Gen Con was very different. Even last year, this was weird. Is like there were a lot of games coming out that people were like super, super excited about, and like they were limited, and you had to get there early, and there was just a lot of excitement and buzz going around. And this year, it just felt a little more chill, which I'm not against at all. But it was also the weird kind of thing where, like, uh, just as one example, Cool Mini or not, right? They announced, hey, we got this license for a board game we're going to put on Kickstarter next year, and then it's going to release in 2020. And so I don't know if that's just a sign of how much of board games is moving to Kickstarter or just a change in how the industry is functioning or what. But I definitely felt like there was a lot of like, hey, there's exciting stuff coming instead of, hey, here's our new exciting stuff. So it was definitely, I would say, one of the weirder Gen Cons for me. It was the first one that didn't feel like all the hype was just happening at Gen Con. It was crazy for three or four days in a row of just insane new stuff hitting that you were learning about and people are talking about while they're waiting in line and all that kind of stuff. I noticed, and maybe this is just me, but it seems like recently your bigger CTG companies like your Rigid, I think Pokemon, and even Konami has a present at Gen Con. I don't know if they had a present there before. Gen Con is new to me because the games that I played, I never really... They had their own event, so they never held events at Gen Con. So I don't know with you going there since 2007 if that is a change that you have noticed. It seems more like it's becoming like Comic Con, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, I mean, that was a, another element that was new is there was definitely a component of video games that were starting to kind of encroach on Gen Con. And there's more of a, what, however you would define Comic-Con vibe that's happening. But at the same time, you know, it's still heavily focused on tabletop. And I think another element of it too was like, it seemed like the convention was more spread out this time. Like the events were using much better use of the surrounding hotels and event centers and stuff. And so it could just be the crowd being dispersed a little better. So I don't know. It was definitely unique. And another change, right, is that Fantasy Flight Games usually announces some pretty big stuff at Gen Con, and they did, but they also did it on Wednesday night instead of Friday afternoon. And so typically, you get in the middle of the convention, and that's when they announce their biggest stuff. But instead, this time, they announced it before the show even started. That could have had an impact, too. I would like to clarify a little bit about the analogy when I talk about Comic-Con. As you know, Comic-Con was formed as, obviously it was before my time, so I'm going off the top of my head here, but obviously it was revolved around comics. And over time, it became a hub, but not only revolving around comics, but things outside of the comic formed, where, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not familiar with it, but Gen Con was like tabletop gaming. And you talk about how video games having a little bit more of a presence. You have these bigger CCGs while they're still tabletop games. It's not something that I would expect at a convention. When I talk about CCG, I'm talking about the big three. So it seems like it's becoming more of a hub, but more underneath the roof of what is its focus, but still expanding outwards on different things, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I definitely get that. It definitely, it feels like what happens right before like major change happens. I get a sense that this is how it felt right before the board game revolution took off. And so we'll see. Things are changing. I think the industry is evolving. It's getting bigger. It's growing up. And even just that, I mean, there's a lot of companies who've tried a lot of things and I think they're all kind of figuring out what works and what doesn't. So a lot of companies are just emulating that instead of pushing into new, exciting, crazy things. You mentioned that Fantasy Flight Games made a announcement at Gen Con. And I want to get to that in a little bit. But Gen Con, when it comes to what I see of the event, because I don't follow tabletop gaming outside of Destiny and a few other things, that it seems like the two big things coming out of Gen Con was Keyforge and Transformers. Sure. I think those are two of the bigger things that came out of Gen Con for sure. Without a doubt. But for me, the biggest thing that came out of Gen Con was Keyforge. And I want to talk about that a little bit because I seem to have gotten addicted to it because it is a game like no other. And you actually got your hands on it. So what is it like? Is it worth the hype? Are you looking forward to it? Short answer, yes and yes. The thing about Keyforge to me is that it's really important to divide the, I guess, critical analysis of the game into the format and then the game itself. So the format, which is the unique deck game, I think is just pure genius. And it's a manufacturing feat that I'm not quite sure how it was accomplished. But the short version is that Covenant, the whole point of our existence is to make it easier for people to learn and buy and get into these tabletop gaming communities. So everything we do is centered around that. From the Master Series we talked about earlier to our Learning Destiny content series to our subscription services, everything we do is geared towards how do we make it easier for people to get and stay involved in these communities. And so with a game like Keyforge, and really not even Keyforge, the unique deck game, right? You completely remove... The barrier of entry that is product acquisition, collecting, deck building, and testing, and replace it with, you know, you walk in, there's 10 people at your store playing this game, and literally for $10, you can buy a deck. Within 30 seconds, you can open it and be sitting at a table ready to play. That is something that, you know, I mean, we've seen it in certain terms of like, I'm trying to think like a a deck builder game or there's been various, you know, sealed games or any game like that. But like to have a true blue card game that is willing to basically forego the deck building and collecting, at least in that way, collecting individual cards component is really wild. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, obviously you're attempting to appeal this product or this format to people that play card games. But I think the biggest proposition for it is how much it could possibly appeal to literally the rest of the 99.99% of the population of the world. And so I think the formats, if you're into deck building games and collecting and tweaking and testing a deck and all of that, then I don't think Keyforge is your game. Like it just isn't. But at the same time, there's tons of games that are for that person. But we see all the time and kind of the way our store is set up and the way we market and whatnot. We get a lot of people interested in getting into games. You know, they walk in and even the simplest and easiest game to get into in our store 
is probably whatever the newest like living card game is outside of just buying a board game. But even with a living card game, it's like, hey, you have to buy two of the core set and then you have to buy these three deluxe boxes and these six packs. And then you got to open it all and sort it all and organize it all. And then you got to learn the game enough to be able to build a deck. But you actually have to kind of build a deck before you even learn the game. And then you may or may not even like it. And then you're kind of stuck on hundreds of dollars of product. So I think the number of people that could possibly get into a game like Keyforge is actually incredibly high just because of the format. And then to kind of round out what I was saying, the second thing to analyze is the game itself. And the game was designed primarily by Richard Garfield, who's the guy that designed Magic the Gathering. He also designed another one of my favorite games, which is the Star Wars TCG. He also designed another one of my favorite games, which is Netrunner. So he has some serious design chops in a way that's the three I just mentioned, Magic, Star Wars TCG, and Netrunner, really nothing alike. There's some elements that carry over, but they're very fundamentally different games. And so, you know, I think that says a lot about Keyforge, the game itself. I think it's incredibly innovative in its design. It's very simple. It's very streamlined. But at the same time, the more games you play, the more you realize just how deep the water is and how much depth is there for you to explore. You know, in general, I'm highly optimistic. I think this is the kind of game that if the card game community in general, and I think that's another interesting point, which is this is the kind of game that could appeal to anybody that plays card games. And because of the way it's constructed in the format, I think it is the perfect second or third game for serious card gamers where you don't have to keep up with the meta. You don't have to test out a deck. You can literally just come and show up with your favorite deck whenever you want to play. But if they get into it enough for this game to be successful, and I think it can pull card gamers from all walks of card games and gaming in general, this is the perfect game for all of us to use to bridge the gap between everyone we know and enjoy as friends that haven't previously been into a game like this. You hit the nail on the head there. Everything that you said is why I am attracted to Keyforge. When the announcement was made for Keyforge, I didn't pay too much attention to it until I looked into the details. After I looked into the details of the game, I realized that this was the second game that I didn't know I was looking for. Because you have your lifestyle living game, which to me is CCGs. I personally am invested in the CCG. I collect, I buy, I trade, I play test. I do all these types of things that it doesn't leave me a lot of time to play other games. And I do a content creation which eats a lot of my time and effort. And other people, you know, they have their hobbies, they have their family life. But with Keyforge, the entry being so low and so cheap that you can literally buy it, play it in one tournament, and you don't feel like you're losing out on anything. You can still come back to it. It's your deck. It's just so exciting. And the gameplay is engaging. And like I said before, this was the second game that I didn't even know I wanted to play. Yeah, for sure. And I think that when you understand who this game is being designed for and really where this format is being made and usable in the industry, I think it's quite exciting, right? I think it really is the perfect gateway for non-card gamers to get into card games. And it's the kind of thing where once I think you get a taste of Keyforge, I think there'll be a lot of people that just stop there. And that's totally fine. And they just keep playing Keyforge or not. But I think once you understand card games and the way tournaments work and the way events work and whatnot, now you're only one step from running into a Star Wars Destiny 2 player starter and saying, hey, what's this? You know, we take it for granted because we've been playing card games for so long, but I see it every time there's a brand new person who just has no idea what's going on. And you're trying to explain how a game works and how to collect and what it means to go to a tournament and how just this whole thing works. And Keyforge just kind of takes away a lot of that and gets them right to the table playing and keeps them around. And then if you stick around, like you eventually venture off and explore into other territory. I also think that Fantasy Flight Games have hit on a genius creation, not only from a gaming mechanic player engagement way, but a business perspective. Because with Fantasy Flight Games, they have these games that tend to cannibalize each other. With this one, it doesn't seem like that will happen with this game. It seems like you can play this game and another one of the games and you don't have to worry about dropping that other game or having that other game bottom line being dropped because the investment is so low. The level of time invested is so low that you can play this game and another one of FFG's games without having to worry about that caramelization that happens with FFG games. For sure. And like I said earlier, I think this is the kind of game that can unite all tabletop gamers, honestly, and functions as a nice second or third game for everyone that's really serious about it. Functions as a great gateway for the new people. And, you know, like I myself, we recently put up, so Keyforge, you buy it by the deck, right? And then the decks come in a display of 12 units. 
And so we have a subscription service that we offer for a bunch of different products. But we added the Keyforge one, and I signed up for a, a display of Keyforge decks, which is 12 decks. And I'm planning on opening the decks. I definitely have the houses that I like the most. And so I'm going to go through, I'm going to play all the decks a couple times, and then I'm probably going to keep four to six of them. I have friends that are going to be interested or curious about the game. And I'm planning on literally just giving them some of my extra decks. But the fun part, right, is like, Outside of maybe a deck that I particularly see that I really like or whatnot, it's like I don't really feel compelled to buy anything else at that point. And so unlike, you know, like Star Wars Destiny, it's like I'm really into it. But like I also have this feeling of like I want to own all of it because I want to be able to build all the decks whenever I want. And that can get pretty cost prohibitive for a lot of people. And like, I get a lot of enjoyment out of these games. So I'm willing to bear the cost, especially for, you know, for me, a Star Wars collectible game that regularly releases products is like my dream. I would take more sets if they would put them out faster. But at the same time, just recognizing how many people that's not the case for, but spending 10 or 20 bucks just to have a good time is absolutely on the table. I would like to touch upon one last thing before we move on to listeners' questions. And what really has me excited for this game is for the potential that it can have in future games. Imagine if this system catches on and it is a success and maybe the system is carried over in, oh, I don't know, Star Wars. Could you imagine having a randomly generated character with a affiliation that is random, like you can have Joe Smith, Jedi Padawan, Jane Smith, Rogue, and then you can have these like legacies characters randomizing it. It just makes me as a Star Wars fan very excited for the potential. Obviously licensing and it's a little bit different of a beast, but can you imagine if this format carries over into other things? Because the investment is so low that you could like play three or four of these and don't have to worry about your missing out on much. Sure. You know, I look at a game like the Star Wars LCG. It was very naturally, you know, it had the Jedi, the Rebels, and the Smugglers. And on the dark side, it had Sith, Scum, and Imperial. And it's like, you could imagine 36 card decks, and it's uh, literally, it's either light or dark side, and it's those three, right? And then you get 12 cards from each of those, and that's your deck. And it's like this streamlined, simple, awesome, fun Star Wars game. And like, again, I think the format is really cool and exciting, and I hope the game is successful, because that will probably dictate whether or not this format gets more explored. And honestly, like I can imagine having 10 different games that are unique deck games like this out. And it's very easy for players to play four or five or six of these and spend less money than they're spending right now on most games and still get to enjoy a whole bunch of different games and a whole bunch of different communities because every game's not for every player. And like I've had moments where like, you know, a game will go away. And so there's certain friends I just don't see quite as often because they come to the store on Thursday night and I come on Wednesday night for Star Wars. And so you just kind of have this potentially unifying force of a format that's coming out. And we'll see. The format is really important. The game is really important. And I think as we've all seen at this point, the first six to 12 months after this game comes out is just as critical as any of that for the long-term health and success of the game. I think, in my opinion, this is what they were trying to achieve with the LCG when it comes to engaging players in multiple games. For sure. And I think that this is a much better take on that. Agree, 100%. Moving into our final section, we are going to answer some questions that were sent to us by some of our listeners. The first question we would like to dive into was brought to us by Jim. Can the Gungan deck be competitive in the standard format? If yes, what changes would you suggest? Yeah, I definitely think so. It was successful. Steven won a store championship a month or two back using the Gungans in Trilogies. It's got four characters, right? It's got a lot of body. It has some free damage. And it can take advantage of a unique set of cards that a lot of other decks can't. Unfortunately, a lot of the cards that we see that take advantage of having lots of characters on the table started really coming around in the second cycle. Where even like something like Into the Garbage Chute, where you exhaust a character and move two dice, those kind of concepts weren't as prevalent in the early days. So I think the Gungan deck gets a lot less tools by being a standard deck at this moment. But I definitely think that anytime you can take a deck in trilogies and do well, there's probably something there in terms of what's going on and whether or not it could work in standard. And so I think there's a lot of changes just because you have access to three sets extra of cards. Specifically what I would change, I would have to really look at the deck builder and play test some games. And a lot of that, especially in standard, depends on your take and analysis on the meta, where mill is really popular right now. So asking the question, 
how is this deck going to beat Mill? Because Mill's not going to be killing my characters. So one of the best cards in the trilogy's version of the deck was the Battlefield, which is the Arena of Death, I think it's called. But you basically do an indirect damage for every one of your defeated characters. And so if your opponent gets you down to one character, you immediately have a claim do three damage Battlefield, which if you do that towards the end of a turn and do that at the beginning of the next turn, once you have them at six health, you just kind of win the game. But Mill's not even going to kill a character. So... The deck has to find a way to win fast enough to not get milled. And then you have to start considering, you know, going down your other potential matchups and whether or not you have the ability to beat it. But I think about something like even Solo Sabine, and it's like she's going to have to do a lot of work to kill that many different characters. I have not really looked at the deck. From what I know from the deck, I don't think right now it can be standard competitive. However, I do think it has potential to be really competitive after rotation. I think once all these strong cards get rotated out, you could probably see Gungans do a little bit better. I think there's something there with Boss Nash. There's something about having a die that is always on even if you roll a blank. I don't know if there's potential with him outside of Gungans. Not right now, but it just seems like that is a, I don't want to say strong ability, but it seemed like a very interesting ability because every character outside of Yoda has one side that does absolutely nothing. With Boss Ness, that isn't the case. You know, the interesting thing about it is, I think, and I may be weird on this one, but I think that Dex... A lot of times, and there are exceptions, but I think a lot of times the success of a deck is more about the deck than the characters themselves. And so what I know about the Gungans is that it's four different characters with a decent amount of health, and they get to run some of the best control cards in the entire game at very little penalty, right? Like Garbage Shoot is not really a huge cost to them because tapping a Gungan is not a huge sacrifice. I would be curious to at least explore it. I think with access to a lot better cards, I think people would be surprised at what a four-wide Gungan style deck could actually accomplish. Unfortunately, we are running low on time, so we're going to answer one more question. This last question was brought to us by Adam, and it's a bit of a long one, so here we go. With rotation looming larger on the horizon, I was wondering what you and Zach think about some of the characters that have never seen heavy play in the Awakening block. Would cards like Ahsoka and Vader 1 see more play if their cost was less restrictive? Is Leia 1 a weak option in the current meta just because there are better options in the hero red? Or is her ability and pay size too restrictive no matter what? Could there be anything done to K2SO, Chit, or Lumina to make them more viable? Or do we just need new versions straight up? I know this is a long question, but I always enjoy revisiting old characters with new sets and would enjoy hearing your thoughts. These recent episodes have been awesome. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Adam. I know that it's a long one, Zach, but where would you like to start with this question? Let's just take it question by question. So would cards like Ahsoka and Vader 1 see more play if their costs were less restrictive? I definitely think so. I think what you're seeing here, and maybe this answers a lot of this question for me at least, is that the point costs and health value and value of dice and characters early on were not what they are today. And you see this with things like Captain Phasma and the two-player starter, or even Kylo 2 compared to someone like Vader. And you kind of go back and look, and some of the characters you just kind of scratch in your head. You know, it's important to remember that the first two sets of the game were designed before the game came out. And so... You know, internal playtesting is good, but at the same time, when you have, I don't know, six to 20 people playing a game, and then it comes out and you have thousands of people playing the game, one of the quotes that I hear a lot is that there's more playtests of a game on the day it comes out than there is in all of development. And so I don't know if that's true or not, but the idea is true, which is just that you learn a lot, right? And so I think we immediately started seeing that in set three in Empire at War, and then we really, really saw that in the two-player starter and Legacies. So I think the truth is, when it comes to Vader and Ahsoka and Leia, and even K2SO and Shirit and Luminara, that the best thing that could happen is that we hit rotation, we're not that far away, we have one more set after Across the Galaxy, and then we're rotated, and then once we rotate, and then we've already seen like a crazy Vader die on the box of the next set, but once we rotate, I fully expect, and we've even seen it in this last set, point costs are going down, health is going up, and that's more than likely going to start extending game length in general. And I think if we went back, original Vader as an example, I think there's no way he'd be above 17 or 18 points. He'd probably be 18, or he would have a better die. And so I'm really excited to get the next version of Vader in terms of his original trilogy self, and can't wait to get him on the table. 
In my opinion, I think when it comes to these older character cards, I think for the most part they are irrelevant right now just because of how CCGs develop and how you have power creep. It is just a part of the game. However, with the point cost, it definitely opens up the door for in the future possibly revisiting these cards in new ways. It is my opinion that I think in the future they are going to go a digital route. And if they do go a digital route, these character cards could get reprinted with no point cost and then just be decreased and perhaps they will see more play. I think Ahsoka would probably see more play at 15. That might be too good. I think Beta, if he's brought down to 17 or 18, it would probably still be too strong. But if they go the digital route and if they don't have these point costs on the cards, it definitely opens up the door for reprints because a card that was printed two years ago can still be applied. You just lower or up the point cost. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of that. They're doing that with X-Wing. They remove the point cost from all the cards and that's going to be in an app. And I have to imagine, again, they're probably dipping their toes in the water, seeing player reactions and how it is to manage that kind of software. But if that goes well, I'd be really, really excited to see Destiny characters lose their point cost on the card and they have some kind of app and website and PDF list that you can reference. Because it's not that the original Vader or Ahsoka are bad or badly designed or don't feel like they're characters. But, you know, if Vader had, when he originally released, been 17 points, he would have just absurdly dominated that Awakening Spirit of Rebellion meta. He was already good enough to win the World Championship. But, you know, now that there's more cards out, I don't even necessarily feel that it's the typical, like, CCG power creep as much as it's like an X-Wing. This was a common problem early where... The TIE Fighters were the basic economic unit of the game, and TIE Swarm was one of the best lists for a long time. And then at some point, they became unplayable because of everything that had been released. And it wasn't that things were just necessarily more powerful, they were just more synergistic. And so, you know, you see a character like Mother Talzin at 12 points, and because of her ability and the points you're paying for her, it's just really hard to run a 21-point character in the game right now, unless that 21-point character is just crazy town because you can run mother talzin and a mandalorian super commando for the same amount of points that you get a single elite vader and so you're looking at more health you're looking at more damage you're looking at access to more cards it's just a crazy difference to sum up it is my opinion that while right now these cards are not playable they're irrelevant i do think like i said we will see them again and hopefully they will be able to be played because old vader while we will get a new vader it looks like it would be nice to play that Vader again. It would be nice to play that Ahsoka, to play these older cards in a more balanced format. So I am optimistic. If not, you know, you can make up your own rules. Sure. Yeah. And I, I definitely, the original Vader is one of my favorite characters in any game. I really love the way he felt like this ominous presence in the game the whole time. So I would love to get him and even Ahsoka on the table. Wow, this has been a really long and engaging podcast. I know that whenever we talk, we could keep talking. I really enjoyed our conversation. We hit a lot of points and this episode was really meaty. I was happy to be here. Uh, as I always say, I'm a huge fan of community-created content, so please keep doing it. And if you're listening to this and you create content, please keep doing it. I know you don't get a lot of thanks, but I enjoy a ton of community content for Destiny. And I know that everyone that is doing it is, in every game I've ever played, really the lifeblood of these games and these communities. So props to all of you for putting in the, the hours and the hard work. And again, thank you so much for having me. And for your listeners who voted on me, I appreciate it and look forward to being back on the show in the future. I really appreciate all those kind words, but I cannot let you go yet. Before we let you go, we here at Iribel would like to ask you three quick shotgun questions. Are you ready? All right. I'm ready. Question one. What is one card in Star Wars Destiny that you think is underrated? Underrated? Oh, man. Um, now you're making me rack my brain. Um, I think that I don't know if they're underrated as much as just underplayed. I think that even as often as we maybe see her, that Dr. Afra is underrated on the level of potentially being broken. Yeah, I agree. I think once we get more droids, I think we'll see her more in the meta. And I'm really excited because Dr. Afra is one of my favorite characters. And yeah. Moving on to our next shocking question. What is one canon Star Wars character that you would like to see come to the game that has not yet been featured? <sighs> Man, these are tough questions. Who would I like to see featured that's not currently in the game? And I have to be careful because it's got to be canon. Um, let's go with... That's tough. 
That's a tough question. I have to be careful that it's not already in the game. Um, oh, you know what? I would love to get a snowtrooper. Yeah, I will give you that one 100%. I think we will definitely see him. He's definitely iconic. And yeah, it would be nice to have him and a trooper and maybe a scout trooper one day. Yeah, I would like to have a lot more different troopers. Our next shotgun question is, what Awakening Cycle card would you like to see get reprinted that has not yet been reprinted? Oh, that one's easy. Mind Trick. 100 times out of 100, Mind Trick. Still one of my favorite cards. Probably a card that is still underrated. I think that a well-timed Mind Trick ends games. I think that is a very good choice, and I think it is balanced enough to be reprinted without having to worry about being nerfed or changed at all. So I think that one is definitely likely to see get reprinted. Absolutely. I'd love to see it. I hope the designers are listening, and I hope they're taking notes. It is now time to wrap things up. Thank you, Zach, for coming on and talking some Star Wars Destiny with me. Like I said, it was a blast, and I always have a lot of fun talking to you. Well, I genuinely appreciate it. Like I said earlier, happy to be on, and hopefully I'll be back at some point soon. Before we let you go, if people would like to contact you, where can they find you? The best place to follow along is on my Twitter account, twitter.com slash Zach Bunn. Zach with a C-H and Bunn with two N's. I do a fair amount of tweeting, and a lot of times it's about destiny, so that's a pretty solid place. And then, of course, teamcovenant.com, Team Covenant Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube channel. We create a lot of content, so it's not that hard to stumble into us and find us. But another thing is I've been experimenting with, and something I'm, uh, we've been busy with Gen Con and traveling and stuff, but semi-regularly I live stream Destiny on Wednesday nights. So if you want to head over to the Facebook for Team Covenant uh, on Wednesday nights, a lot of times I'll be streaming games of Destiny. That concludes this episode of Ivy Bell. Thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, Jedi Geek Girl out. This has been Ivy Bell, a Star Wars Destiny podcast. I have been your host, Jedi Geek Girl. If you would like to contact me, please send me an email at ivybelldestiny at gmail.com. And as always, may the force be with you. Bell is an independent podcast, not associated with Lucasfilm, Disney, Fantasy Flight Games, or any other organization. All copyrights for Star Wars, Star Wars Destiny, and all other properties belong to the proper copyright holders.